Once again, welcome everyone. Welcome to our <clears throat> gathering here on, on Monday nights. As many of you know, hopefully you know, today is Indigenous Peoples Day, a day to honor Indigenous peoples, their culture, their history. And for those of you here, whether online or in person, with indigenous roots to honor you specifically. And in light of this, I, I want to begin this evening by uh, honoring and acknowledging the lands that I'm sitting on here right now, which is the traditional and ancestral homelands to 13 different tribes who hold the, the peaks overlooking us uh, as sacred. Those peaks on uh, Navatakiobe and Hopi or Tokoslid and and Tane. And these 13 tribes, they they include the Akama Pueblo and the Port McDowell Yavapai and the Havasupai and the Hopi and the Hualapai, the Navajo and the San Carlos Apache and the San Juan Southern Paiute and the Tanto Apache and the White Mountain Apache the Yavapai Apache and the Yavapai Prescott and the Zuni as well. And tonight in, in light of Indigenous Peoples Day, I, I wanna take some time to share with you a few, a few reflections on learning how to honor each other. Cause I find this such important part of my life, just being in community and an important part of, of this tradition as well. And later on, yes, it will be specifically centered around indigenous peoples to honor uh, the specific day and those peoples with, with that kind of history. But hopefully some of this can be generalized beyond that as well. So first of all, honoring. Some of you might know this when we chant in this Buddhist tradition, the refuges and precepts, when it's done in Pali, one of the early scriptural languages of Buddhism, it begins with that word, namo, which is translated as uh, to honor. And in that context, it's honoring the Buddha. And in particular, it can also be seen as honoring what's called the three refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And I think a contemporary way of under, understanding honoring Sangha or community, at least for me, is this task that I have as a practitioner of learning what it is to honor each other, to honor others. Because when I reflect on it, this is what makes Sangha. This is what allows us to come together as community. As a true community, true Sangha being, as it said, one thing when arising in the world arises for the welfare of the many, for the happiness of the many, for the welfare and happiness of many beings, both human and divine. So how do I engage in this process of honoring others? How is it connected with this practice that we're doing? So I wanna begin with what I find for myself to be 
the basis of what it is to honor another person. And that's to make sure that I'm practicing when I come in contact with another, this quality of presence. But that's the foundation. And then you'll hear pieces that I'll place on, on top of that. And I'd like to share with you some words from Eugene Gendlin. He's He's, uh, he's talking more about the therapeutic encounter, but I, I think the way he sees that can be generalized to what it is to, to encounter any human being or any being that's in front of, front of us. So he gives us advice of what that is. And of course, it is going to be situated a little bit in a, a, a therapeutic encounter, but hopefully you can hear how it can be broadened. <clears throat> so he begins, he begins by saying, I want to start with the most important thing I have to say. The essence of working with another person is to be present as a living being. And that is lucky. Because if we had to be smart or good or mature or wise, then we would probably be in trouble. But what matters is not that. What matters is to be a human being with another human being. To recognize the other person as another being in there. So when I sit down with someone, I take my troubles and feelings and I put them over here on one side close because I might need them. And then I'm just here with my eyes, and there is this other being. If they happen to look into my eyes, they will see that I'm just a shaky being. I have to tolerate that. They may look, and if they do, they will see that. They will see the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, insecure existence that I am. And I have learned that that is okay. I don't need to be emotionally secure and firmly present. I just need to be present. There are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be. Striking, don't you think, that description of what it is to be in contact with another human being? And I find it relieving, right? I don't have to be wise or smart. I can be shaky and insecure. I don't even I need to be emotionally secure. I don't even need to be firmly present. I just need to be here as another human being. And even the sense that here are my troubles close to me. Of course, I want to put them aside so I can hear the other person. Hearing the other is so important. But I need them in order to be informed of what it is to listen and to hear. So for me, this is the basis of honoring. And yet I also find to really learn this process of honoring, sometimes there's these other dimensions that are also needed that I want to weave into this, especially on this day of Indigenous Peoples Day. Because at times there's one dimension that I found supportive in learning to honor others and that's understanding history. 
And I, I find this particularly important if I'm learning to honor a group of peoples, such as indigenous folks, who have been invisibilized, marginalized, and oppressed. This is important to understand history. Why is it important to understand history in such a context? And I'd like to share with you some words from James Baldwin. I, I shared these a couple months ago in a talk where he speaks to this. He says, history, as nearly no one seems to know, is not merely something to be read. And it does, it does not refer merely or even principally to the past. On the contrary, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways, and history is literally present in all that we do. It could scarcely be otherwise, since it is to history that we owe our frames of reference, our identities, and our aspirations. Right? The, the great force of history comes from the fact that it's right here. I'm, I'm carrying it within me. It's in the waters of our interactions with others. History is happening right now. And in regard to indigenous, indigenous peoples, I found it so important to learn about and to continue to learn about the process of colonization that has happened and is happening even as I speak. So I have this foundation of presence, but yeah, how can I bring in also the felt sense of some of these important historical pieces, especially here where we live here, really in, in Indian country. In terms of colonization that has happened here in the US and is happening, there, there's one statistic that just seems so helpful for me to remember in this context. Historians estimate that from the arrival of Christopher, Christopher Columbus in 1492 to the end of the 19th century, so the late 1890s, that by that time, 90 to 99% of the Native American population was wiped out due to colonization in various forms. A kind of genocide that has happened and in some ways maybe continues to happen. And, and I, I say this because sometimes this is a part of Native American history or our history that I carry inside me that can be so easily forgotten in dominant cultural spaces in the United States. And as a practitioner, what I'm seeing if I can practice is not only thinking about it, but allowing it into my heart with capacity. Can I have this understanding with compassion? So I'm sensing into this with my heart, not just thinking about it, so that I can show up in this way that I can honor others. And 
And as I said, it's not like these dynamics of colonization ended at the end of the 19th century. It's important to see they're happening right now. For example, just a few months ago, many of you might know this, this past June, that decision came from the United States Supreme Court that decided that the federal government holds no obligations in securing water for the Navajo Nation. So that's that's right here in this, this area. And so the Supreme Court had overturned a decision a lower court had made in favor of the Navajo Nation. So Neil Gorsuch, one of the Supreme Court justices wrote the dissent for this, this decision. He's a uh, avid uh, uh, advocate uh, or an advocate for tribal rights. And he pointed out that such a decision that the Supreme Court made just in June, it was yet again the federal government refusing to follow their obligations spelled out in this treaty that they signed with the Navajo Nation in 1868. And many of you probably know this, on the Navajo reservation, there's more than 30% of Navajo households that don't have water, running water. So in just June, more broken promises. And on these sacred peaks, the Snowball Ski Area, which has primarily ignored the concerns of 13 different tribes, their concerns and their protests about having a ski resort on their sacred land. And these concerns have been voiced since 1978. And the federal government has mandated the Forest Service to actively work with Native tribes to reach agreements that honor the sacred and ceremonial spaces that are now within Forest Service lands. So more broken promises right now, today, in this space that we live in, at least here in Arizona. As James Baldwin said, the great force of history comes from the fact that we carry it within us, are unconsciously controlled by it in many ways. And I, I wanna point out that yet this isn't all of American, Native American history. This is the way actually I was taught Native American history, but it's not all of it. Yes, there's this dimension of historical trauma that I want to make sure that is spoken about, that is presenced for us. But it's also important to remember, at least for me, that it's also a history of indigenous resiliency, incredible resiliency. You know, for me to come to honor a group of people or to honor individual people, 
especially those who have been systemically oppressed, it's important for me to see such peoples not as merely victims, which can come when only the trauma is talked about. Peoples are much more than that. So to honor is to come to honor and behold histories of resiliency. Can I take that into my heart as well? And to be honest, it's because I can forget that part. Like in terms of history, you know, for me, my limited understanding of Native American history, sometimes all I you know, was hearing about was the brutality of colonization, which is true. For example, the brutality of Spanish colonization in the 16th century. It was brutal and oppressive. Yet there's one piece that I just discovered from an historian of Native American history of pointing out that during the 16th century, that the Puebloan uh, Indians from a variety of different Pueblo tribes they had banded together. This is kind of in what's present day New Mexico. They banded together in a way that prevented the Spanish from establishing any serious and lasting settlements for a hundred years. That's resiliency. That's tenacity. That's connection and community. Now that's resilience in the face of immense adversity. And we see this even more recently. In the, a few years ago, the resilience, you could say, through standing up and speaking out, like the, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, people from more than 300 federally recognized Native tribes came together in unity to protect water rights and historically significant sites, sacred sites. What a beautiful thing to come together in solidarity. Or just last week to see that resiliency is happening right now. You know, Native Americans peacefully protesting in Española, in, in Española New Mexico and in, in Rio Riba County, protesting the, the attempt to reinstall a statue of Juan de Oñate. And last week, there was even a shooting of a Native American there, you know, who was peacefully praying. And yet the, 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 the protest continued peacefully even after that. That's resilience. That's the history of resilience that continues even today. Can you get a sense of how that feels different to take in history, not only historical trauma, but historical resiliency? It broadens what it is for me to take in others, to not narrow in one way or another. And even everyday acts that are happening right now of resiliency that happens through generosity. Even just here in this area, for those of you who are in person. For example, my neighbor was just telling me about some folks in the Talani 
lake area, um, the Navajo Reservation. Aletha Johnson, who lives in Talani Lake, she helps out with this nonprofit, Talani Lake Enterprises. Right, this vision to establish local food, water, and economic systems for that area. Helping out in need, going with her truck to haul water for someone who doesn't have water, who doesn't have a truck. This community helping out community. Helping out with kids or gardening or Jonathan Yazzie from Talani Lake decides to start an after-school program for the kids there. What a beautiful expression of, of resilience for Lillian Hill on the Hopi Reservation. The, the, she works with the Hopi uh, Tutsqua uh, Permaculture Institute. This community organizer helping people to reclaim the indigenous wisdom of farming, of growing food to support these local food systems. And I, I wanna be clear, I'm, I'm just naming a few people within a whole web of indigenous people embodying resiliency through generosity. Yeah, historical trauma, and yes, histories of resiliency continuing. So can I continue to understand with my heart these histories, histories of trauma, histories of resilience? To me, this is part of the process of learning even more deeply what it is to honor others. And then there's a, another dimension that I think is so important that winds with these first two dimensions, with this, this foundation of presence this foundation of understanding histories. And that's also understanding this mind here, my own mind. Because how I perceive others is greatly influenced by how this mind has been shaped. You know, in, in Buddhist terms, one of the terms that's used to describe how the mind gets shaped is sankharas, these mental for fabrications. At least that's one of the ways that word is used in only some contexts. And you can see maybe a modern understanding of this is that these, there are these sankharas, these mental formations that shape how I perceive, perceive the world and others. And you can say a correlate, a modern correlate to this is how stereotypes function. So in particular, as a practitioner, can I become aware of the stereotypes of Native Americans that got embedded in this mind of mine by dominant culture as I was growing up. Maybe you've noticed this too, those of you who've grown up in modern American dominant culture. These unskillful stereotypes, right? those inaccurate, oversimplified versions about, you could say, a certain group of peoples that can get embedded in one's mind like the stereotype such as the drunk Indian, which is on one side of the spectrum. And then there's the opposite spectrum, which also can be just as confining, which is the spiritually wise elder who is in touch 
with nature, which can be intertwined with maybe even an unconscious notion that the real natives are the ones that still are somehow hunter-gatherers. For the drunk Indian stereotype, I, th I think what can be forgotten so easily is that often, you know, there's the correlation is much more around poverty and mental stress that can arise from poverty and from discrimination and oppression rather than one's kind of ethnic identity. You know, one of my colleagues, Bonnie Duran, who's a fellow Dharma teacher of mine, and she's also an indigenous scholar, did her whole dissertation just on this one stereotype, the historical aspect of it, and how it continues in dominant society. And then there's the other side, the spiritually wise elder, which can arise from this huge fascination non-Native people can have with Native folks. It's like this fascination with the other. And it's I, I'm not saying that non-Native people shouldn't learn from indigenous wisdom, but that that's something different than oversimplifying the person or people in front of us. Because it can bifurcate in this way where one once again gets invisibilized. Remember, remember uh, speaking with someone, this is... Uh, uh, for, from the Tibetan diaspora. He had um, come over from occupied Tibet and he was, uh, I think he was, he was bagging groceries. I think it was at Whole Foods, Foods. I was in New Mexico and I remember talking to him and he said, yeah, like people come up to me and, and, and it's like, there's only two categories for me. I'm either the holy spiritual Tibetan or I'm either the brown guy packing people's groceries that nobody sees. Like that's all that's there for me. Like I'm just a stereotype. And it can be so deep. I was just uh, speaking with a friend who used to um, have a job of um, being a part of an organization taking French tourists around and they drive through the Navajo reservation to Monument Valley. And often the French tourists would be like, this isn't, where are the Indians? This isn't, this isn't what Indians, this isn't the Indians that I, I wanna see because they had such strong stereotypes from Native Americans from movies that they couldn't see what was in front of them. They'd even argue with her about it. She said it's very French to argue about everything. <laughs> right? Do you hear the confinement that happens when our minds get shaped in this way, when my mind gets shaped in this way? And then these, these notions get co-opted in, in harmful ways. So these are the kinds of notions that in, get embedded in my mind being by uh, growing up in dominant culture. And with practice, when I recognize them, then I can unhook from them. And luckily this is beginning to change more and more with more films coming out and series coming out that offer more nuanced portrayals of indigenous individuals that don't fit into these nice, neat little boxes of stereotypes. There's 574 federally recognized Indian nations, as well as more than 60 state recognized tribes. 
that's a huge diversity just in terms of language and culture. And then when you bring in kind of the diversity that happens just from individual to individual, there's such a, a complexity there that I need to also remember when honoring. So yes, learning history, it's so important to learn the history of various peoples. And yet I also need to remember not to confine, even with history, into these little boxes. For some folks, historical trauma is something that's very meaningful for their journey, sometimes not. And there's a whole range of histories of resilience. Which brings me back to the very first thing that I shared with you that I have as a basis, the presence, understanding history, understanding my own mind, and then coming back to what Eugene Gendlin said. He said, I wanna start with the most important thing I have to say. The essence of working with another person is to be present as a living being. And that's so lucky. Because if we had to be smart or good or mature or wise, then we'd probably be in trouble. So when I sit down with someone, I take my troubles and feelings and I put them over here on one side close because I might need them. And then I'm just here with my eyes and there is this other being and if they happen to look into my eyes, they will see I'm just a shaky being. I have to tolerate that. They may not look, but if they do, they will see that. They will see the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, insecure existence that I am. And I have learned that that is okay. I don't need to be emotionally secure and firmly present. I just need to be present. There are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be. So on this day of Indigenous Peoples Day, may we learn to honor each other more and more deeply. Through understanding history, through understanding our own minds, and through understanding what it is to be present, simply present with another. Thank you, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.